You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmoreccc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. The things that you realize when you dig into, especially the epistles, things like Romans and Galatians and Colossians and Ephesians, is, is you really get to take a moment to settle down and listen to what Paul is trying to teach us about the relevancy of the gospel and the power of the gospel and how, we, how the gospel continues to cause our lives to bear fruit and to grow and to flourish. But one of the things that work against that is when we think about the gospel as primarily an afterlife reality. I won't belabor this point because we've talked about them quite a bit and we talked about it in the introduction series to Colossians. But I think maybe if I can bring a little more clarity to what I mean by that, as I grew up in evangelicalism, mostly what I learned about in regards to Jesus was his death. We talked a lot about the death of Jesus. We talked a lot about accepting that death as a sacrifice for your sins. And we talked a lot that I would come to learn wasn't so much necessarily committed to scripture, but we were committed to to our Christian tradition that kind of summarized the gospel in a particular way. And that's what we were taught. And so that summary of the gospel had primarily to do with Jesus' death. The truth of the matter is, I really didn't think about much relevance of Jesus's teachings to my life because it was so emphasized that the point of our salvation is the death of Christ. Well, I've come to learn that that is erroneous, that's wrong, that's a truncated understanding of the work of Christ. And and part of that happened is as I grew and mature and my theological studies required me to understand other systems of belief and other traditions of the Christian faith. And as I began to open myself up to see what other Christians thought about things, I realized that my own movement really needs the movement of other streams of Christianity because we had a myopic view of the life of Christ that really didn't get become robust until I had the privilege of kind of thinking through how other streams of Christianity thought about the work of Jesus. And so what what I want to suggest is the significance of Jesus is in his life, teaching, death, resurrection, and then the presence of the living Christ through the worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All five of these elements are absolutely necessary in order to understand the fullness of the gospel and to understand how the gospel continues to transform me, a believer, every single day. How the gospel is still at work in my heart still drawing me to the Lord, still drawing me to repentance. The sinner's prayer, my beef with the sinner's prayer is we're taught to to pray at one time. I find myself praying that daily and maybe several times a day. Lord, I'm a sinner, I repent, I need your forgiveness, and I need you to empower me if I'm going to even come close to living out the reality of the holiness that you've deposited in me, it will only be through Christ. I don't just need Christ for my death, I need Christ for my living. I need Christ for my loving my wife, for loving my children, for loving myself. I I cannot do it without the power that Christ provides. So, It's the life and teaching of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, 
and the presence of the living Christ through the worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These in totality are the reality of the gospel. And that's why the gospel is as relevant for, this, for, the, for the Christian who's been following Jesus for 70 years as it is for the new initiate that's just coming into the faith for the very first time. The gospel is relevant for both of these people. And so we want to appreciate the fullness of that gospel. So I want to take some time to slow down and look at a few terms and a few ways that the, that the apostle Paul articulates this glory of the gospel. So we're just going to look at three verses this morning and they're part of the paragraph that we looked at last week. But if the paragraph, if the paragraph is the forest, then we want to land the plane and go check out three of the trees that are in that forest this morning. So we're simply going to look and meditate on Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14, which says, um, which again, verse 12 is kind of a weird verse because it seems like that was a weird place to put the number 12 because it's leading in from a previous sentence from verse 11, which ends with joyfully. Anyway, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. But what I wanted to, and which we looked at that last week. What I really want to concentrate on verses 12b through 14. Look at the second part of verse 12. Who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light? He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Now, this is a summary of our salvation. Let me ask you a question as you look at those three verses that articulate the grandeur and the mystery of the salvation that, bring, that Jesus brings. Who is the one and only actor in those verses? It's not really a trick question. It's so easy. People think it's a trick question. God is. Now, this is really important because I, I want to do my best of, of bringing clarity to what I'm saying. And uh, when I've spoken, sometimes people take away from it that I don't believe in anything like repentance and obedience. I just believe let's, God's grace covers it all, so let's all get crazy. And, um, and so for them, I'm a good Corinthian because, you know, Corinthians are Christians gone wild. Um, uh, but then I will talk about maybe the commands of Christ or the commands of scripture and about how we might be empowered to fulfill those. And then people say, you are a legalist and you're teaching work salvation. So I know that this is a conversation that's important to evangelicals and it gets muddied and gets confused. And so I wanna to try to tease this out. I do believe that we are responsible to cooperate with what God is doing, but more to that later. Right now, let's start with this. I do want you to see in the grace of God, this passage makes the recipient of salvation 100% passive. In this regard, the foundation of our salvation has nothing to do with our choices or response, but rather with the work of God who draws us to himself. And that's what's really clear here. Look at this. In this verse, 
It is God who enables us to share in the inheritance in the saints of light. It is God who rescues us from the domain of darkness. It is God who transfers us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. It is God who gives us redemption and it is God who gives to us the forgiveness of sins. And then we are called to then respond. I, I just wish these theological categories of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. I just, I'm so tired of that conversation. For one thing, these aren't even phrases that are in the scripture. Perhaps we might be better to think of salvation as a dance that God leads. And he initiates and he leads, but we respond. And that's what creates that beautiful poem of our life that Hebrews celebrates that God has always intended for our lives to, to, to be. So let's take a little bit of time this morning and look at some of these words. This word rescued, again, as you know, I am beyond um, at 49 trying to impress everyone with all the smart words I know. So I'm not even going to begin to try to pronounce this in the Greek. That's why it's there in your notes. Um, but, you know, the Google has a pronunciation guide if you're really curious about it. So it says that he has rescued us. Now, here's what's interesting. In general, because evangelicals like to talk mostly about how the death of Jesus saves us from our sins, we like the word rescue. That makes sense. Okay, God rescues us from our sins. And then we read a, a, a verse like, taken from the domain of darkness, transferred for the kingdom of the love of the son that he loves. And initially we might say, yes, he's taken us, he's forgiven our sins so that we're taken away of being hell bound and now we're heaven bound. Now, as you all know, that kind of theological reasoning is offensive to me at this season of my life because it truncates the gospel. But that's typically how we think of that. But what I, what I want you to see, it's just so critical that the idea of rescue, look at this, it means to draw to oneself. In other words, the point of the celebration of this rescue mission is not the focus on what we're rescued from, but what we are rescued to. So I don't understand why most of discipleship focuses on understanding what we've been rescued from and, 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 and then focuses primarily on the death of Christ, which I'm not belittling, that's a necessary aspect. But why don't we disciple people into what we've been rescued to, which then we take our cues from the truth of the resurrection and the conquering of sin and death and the fact that the living Christ has made his presence universal through the worldwide outpouring of his spirit that is omnipresent. Now, that's the thing that's supposed to be guiding our life, not simply the struggle to get free of sin, but rather to embrace the glorious calling that God has invited us to participate in. So this idea of rescue, the emphasis is not on what you're being rescued from, but what you're being rescued to. So let's look again at this word. It means to draw to oneself. That is to say, to deliver. If we look down under the helps, the word studies um, uh, lexicon, we see this. Once again, it emphasizes to draw to oneself properly, to draw or pull to oneself, to rescue, to snatch up, to draw or rescue a person to and for the deliverer. Let's look at that again. To draw or rescue the person to and or for the deliverer. 
Properly, it means to snatch out for oneself. Thayer says, properly, it means to draw out to oneself. That is to say, to rescue for oneself. In other words, <laughs> deliverance from sin is what we've made the goal. I would suggest to you to entertain a paradigm that is not the goal. That deliverance and forgiveness of sin is a means to an end, not the goal. It's the, it's the step we walk through to get to the goal. The goal is not what we've been delivered from, but that we come into and live this revelation that we've been drawn out of sin in order to be drawn to God and for God. And so, so it's not just a rescue in terms of we're free from evil, but it's a rescue that we've been brought into a place of shalom. So let's think about this for just a moment as we contemplate these words and we contemplate this idea that, that, that God is the one who rescues us, but he does so to draw us to himself. So the question is not, are you forgiven? But are you alive to the presence of God? And as I look at my own life and I think about conversations I've had, too many believers can easily say, yes, I've been forgiven. Praise the Lord, Jesus paid the price I couldn't pay. But then the second question is just as relevant. Are you alive to the presence of God? Well, then that conversation gets muddied. It's complicated. Sometimes it's a little confusing. What does that even mean? How is one alive to the presence of God? But that is the point. The question is not simply, are you forgiven? But are you alive to the presence of God? Because we all know too many Christian stories and maybe we are one of them till we understand it's not enough to say the sinner's prayer and sign a card and then try to figure out life on your own. If you're not drawn from sin to God, then, then life still becomes very much fraught with obstacles that keep us from being fully alive as God's in, God intends. So not just are you, are you alive? The only way to be consistently free from the authority of darkness is to be submitted to the authority of light. So this becomes very important. Salvation is about what God is drawing you to, not simply what God is drawing you from. And therefore, therefore, the way we're consistently free is not by throwing off all forms of authority, but rather to learn submission to the authority of the light. We tend to focus on, we tend to focus uh, as evangelicals on Jesus as Savior. Whereas the early Christians' focus was on Jesus is Lord. And I like that much better because when you proclaim Jesus as Lord, you are proclaiming Jesus as Savior. But sometimes in our Christian rhetoric, there are plenty of us that claim Jesus as Savior, but he's not our Lord. And you remember the Great Commission is not go into all the world and make converts. It is not go into all the world and evangelize to our theology and ideology. What's the Great Commission? Go into the world and make what? Disciples. Make disciples. That's why we have all these silly debates on like, how can we tell if a person is really saved? How can I know that I'm really saved? Well, the reason why we have that question is because we haven't blended trusting Jesus with following Jesus. Jesus. 
Because if you follow Jesus, the spirit is going to bear fruit in your life that makes it undeniable that you are in fact saved. But because we separate those two movements, we have made a huge error in the way we call people to discipleship. We tend to focus on Jesus as Savior, whereas the early Christians' focus was on Jesus as Lord. Thus, to be saved is to be transferred into another realm of authority. That's what it means to be saved, to be transferred into another realm of authority. We are passive in this act of God's grace and mercy. He does the rescuing. He does the transferring. We do not. He rescues us from the domination of darkness because we cannot break free on our own. That's the first half of the story, but that's not the totality of the story. Because then he invites us to, as Paul said, experience the gospel in such a way that it is growing and bearing fruit. And we looked at this two weeks ago in the first part of Colossians 1. What is, and what is the evidence of growing and bearing fruit? You are loving other people. That's what he says. That's what he gives us in Colossians 1. The reason why I know the gospel is bearing fruit is because I've heard of your love for the saints. So, to be saved is to be transferred into another realm of authority. So the focus for our growth in the gospel is not simply that we've been delivered, it's not simply to understand what we've been delivered from, but rather in understanding what we have been delivered to. Look at it again, verse 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice these phrases that Paul uses. In fact, what Paul is doing is he's simply making parallel phrases so that he can increase the means through which he's communicating this mystery. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at this passage and there are some parallels, Paul is reiterating the same message with different descriptions. So if we look at the parallels, we see that the idea of being rescued from parallels with the idea of redemption in verse 14. Okay, and then we see that in verse 13, the idea of being transferred into parallels the celebration, the forgiveness of sins as we look at those two back to back with one another. So let's look at those parallels. Rescued means redemption, transferred into the kingdom of the son that he loves is paralleled with the phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Now that's interesting, isn't it? It means that the forgiveness of sins means something more than the forgiveness of sins. It means the forgiveness of sins means that you have been transferred into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Well, that's a much more robust understanding of what salvation might mean. The goal of forgiveness of sin is being transferred into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Notice here that this is not simply being rescued from the harsh taskmaster of sin, but also being brought into the kingdom where Jesus reigns as Lord. In other words, and this is, these two next two sentences are my main point this morning. In other words, there is no conception of liberation without submission in the Bible. And because we present the gospel in such a way that we lean heavy on the liberation, 
but we rarely talk about and model what it looks like to be in submission to Lord Jesus. We have truncated the gospel message because in the scripture, there is no thought of liberation without a corresponding submission. So if there's a main idea, a big idea this morning, it's this. The goal of our salvation is the flourishing of shalom under the lordship of Christ. The goal of our salvation is the flourishing of shalom, which is what the gospel brings, the gospel of peace. God's peace is shalom under the lordship of Christ. The New Testament never entertains the idea of salvation as believing in Jesus apart from following Jesus. And in fact, when, people, when, when Jesus called people to himself, what is the phrase that he used? Follow me. Follow me. See, this is why the church is anemic and this is why we can be masters of our doctrine about Christ and yet be so unattractive to the world because we do not look like Jesus. We just like, look like religious people that have perfected our ideas about Jesus. My friends, this is not the liberation that Jesus came to bring. He didn't come to forgive you of your sins so that you could get a straight A on your theology test. He came to empower you to live the very life he lived when he walked on earth. That is what incarnation is all about. That we are embodying not doctrines about Jesus, but that we are embodying the very life of the living Christ. That, my friends, is salvation. So there's not this idea that I can believe in Jesus apart from following Jesus. Increasingly, Yielding to the authority of Jesus in every sphere of life is the primary choice that impacts our continued growth in the gospel. So for anybody who might have felt apprehensive when I talked about the passivity of receiving our salvation, I'm bringing you back into the conversation. I am not saying that our choices are irrelevant. I think they are infinitely relevant because Increasingly yielding to the authority of Jesus in every sphere is the primary choice that impacts my continued growth in the gospel. What does it mean to yield to the authority of Jesus? Well, to save you some time from having to go back and listen to last week's sermon, I'm going to give you the answer to your test question. It means to walk in the ways of God. Again, I can't every week go back to the previous week, but this is why we're going slow in building so that we're using the same language. So when I say authority of Jesus, I don't mean, oh gosh, I'm sorry, Lord, this week I hit my finger and I said a word that you don't like. Lord, I'm sorry, went to dinner last night and I drank a little bit too much wine. Not, not too much, I didn't get drunk, but I think I drank just enough to make you mad. So I'm really sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about submitting to the authority of Jesus so you allow yourself to be so empowered by the Spirit that you are effective in bearing fruit because you are walking in the ways of God. That is the liberty of salvation. That's what it means to be submitted to Jesus is that I am making the choice to walk in the ways of God. And I learn to walk in the ways of God, for those of you who are wondering, 
I learn to walk in the ways of God by cultivating an inner rhythm of awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. Awareness, learning, reflecting, and action. And again, we spent more time talking about those last week, but I'll keep bringing them up throughout this series. See, and look at the language that's used. I love this idea that to rescue someone means that you pull them to yourself. You snatch them up for yourself. You draw them to yourself. And so here's the major difference between a salvation that makes me religious and a salvation that makes me spiritually alive in Christ. The way that I can tell is this. Under the domain of darkness, we are driven. But in the kingdom of light, we are drawn. The Holy Spirit doesn't drive. The Holy Spirit woos and he draws. And what's even better is the Holy Spirit identifies the obstacles that prevent us from yielding to that drawing and he systematically removes those obstacles so that in the end, his love wins 100%. God's love never, ever fails. It conquers, it woos, it snatches, and it draws. Thus, we have to become aware of that drawing of the Spirit. So, in summary, we are not delivered from living under any authority. We are delivered from the authority of darkness to the authority of light, which is why the question becomes, under whose or what authority am I living? This is a question that we should ask ourselves morning, noon, and night, and potentially several moments in between. Because it is in learning to become conscious of the narrative that's authorizing my actions is the key to maturity. But most of us don't take time to ever question or become aware of the narrative. And I'm not talking about if someone asks you and you consciously think about the narrative. I'm talking about what is that unaccountable narrative that's always flea-throwing through your mind. Because my narrative is 100% about me. And so I therefore have to take time and to, and to pursue spiritual practices that allows me to be aware of the narrative that is driving my choices. So that that narrative, remember what Paul said? We take every thought captive to what? The obedience of Christ. Well, if I don't take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, my thoughts go anti-Christ and self-centered most of the time. And so, so, look, I'm doing my best, but the truth of the matter is I still get seduced by lesser lords. And I'm going to step out on a limb here and guess that you also get seduced by lesser lords. And so growth in the gospel is recognizing the lesser lords that are dominating my choices. 
and the making a choice of repentance to take those captive to the obedience of Christ so that I'm consciously being aware, no, I don't want to be captive to lesser lords. I want to be submitted to the benevolent Lord of all, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. So, another way of saying it might be, what is the motivational center of my soul? Is it darkness or is it light? Is it the Satan or the adversary? Or is it the Christ, the advocate? This is so critically important. I, I don't know why, but the Lord, well, I don't always feel this way in this season of my life. But it does seem as I reflect on this season of my life that the Spirit is drawing me more deeply into Christ. And in that process, I have to confront a lot of the things we're talking about. And I had the most profound revelation this week. I think it happened when I was driving down the road. And I realized something. Honestly, <laughs> I wasn't praying. I was having a vengeance fantasy. You guys ever do those? Man, it really would have been powerful if I would have said this just then. I was having one of those fantasies. Man, I really I wish, I wish I would have said this and was just like, cut them to their core. Don't you come up in here disrespecting on me. You know how I be. <laughs> but I distracted myself. But, and the Holy Spirit spoke and I realized something. And I'm going to try to keep my manly composure as I say, share this with you. What I realize is this. There has never been a single soul in my life that has talked to me so disrespectfully, so belittling, and with such loathing as me. By far, the cruelest person, the person has been the cruelest to Artie Favre, is consistently Artie Favre. And so I did my religious reaction, Lord, I repent. And the Spirit said, you don't need to repent to me. You need to apologize to yourself because you have not been living in, 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 in faith of who I've made you to be. Instead, You've been sabotaging yourself because you cultivate an atmosphere of unbelief because you refuse to honor yourself the way I have honored you in your redemption. I had, almost had to pull over. The Holy Spirit nailed it on that, that time. He may, he may make a mistake later on. I'm still waiting. But on that one, I, I have the humility to say, that is absolutely right. The dialogue in my mind is from my adversary, not from my advocate. And I know this is going to sound to some of you a little, Artie's going off the deep end. But there's something profound when you can practice kindness to yourself. When you can practice gentleness with yourself. Then, your choices of faith become choices of affirmation, not loathing. 
same is true as I think about my on, on and off again journey in my physical health. I realize the moments of consistently come from engaging in health practices for the purpose of enhancing my life and liberating me to do and be who God's called me to be. But most of the time, I go up to the gym because I look in the mirror and I hate that guy. And so I am allowing self-loathing and shame to drive me into a practice that everybody goes, good job with that. But I can't sustain it because I cannot continue to hold on to an action that's good for me from the motive of hating myself. The only way I can actually pursue that so it bears fruit long-term is not affirming myself, but affirming the truths of the gospel and what it says about myself. Because that's something way bigger bigger than self-affirmation. I'll take Jesus' affirmation over self-affirmation any day of the week. So is it the adversary or is it the advocate? Is your Lord resentment or is your Lord gratitude? Is your Lord your woundedness or is your Lord your pursuit of healing? Is your Lord fear or is it love? Is your Lord anger or is your Lord gentleness? Is your Lord antichrist or is your Lord in Christ? Is your Lord non-love or love? My friends, there is a tremendous difference of walking with the living Christ and becoming an expert about the living Christ. Those are not the same things. And how many of you growing up in church entered into a so-called discipleship program that was solely about learning information? Now, later in life, I encountered spiritual mentors that were more concerned with my walking with the living Christ than how much I know knew. But it took decades for me to find those people, or I suppose de- decades for me to be prepared to listen to those people. All my discipleships consisted of booklets with questions with proof text verses on the end, and you're supposed to read the question, go look up the verse, and then obviously you're supposed to write what the verse says to that question. So again, no real wrestling with the word, no real wrestling with the scripture, no real wrestling with the spirit to give birth to who you are to become. It's just memorizing more and more facts and information. And now we're at the point to recognize that the robust center of the worldwide Christian movement is not the United States. And all you have to do is go look up some sociologists, some missiologists, and you learn very quickly the power center of the faith is in Latin America. That's where it is. Before that, it was in Africa. It hasn't been the West and the United States for a very, very, very long time. But guess what? We've got better doctrine than they do. In fact, we can look at the enormous success of the gospel in those areas and at least feel good about the fact that yeah, but I'm not sure they've got this whole election and sovereignty thing figured out. Pretty sure they're, they're, they don't quite understand that the way I do. Well, yippee skippy. But 
I've got less years in front of me than I have behind me, and I'm not going to waste them on just getting more information so I can burst into heaven saying, God, quiz me. That's not what I want. I want to be worn out by grace and joy and the fatigue that comes from working hard, blood, sweat, and tears in conjunction and in cooperation with my Lord. That is what I want to live for. And so, I would submit to you this idea. When it comes to what it means to evangelize or share your faith, we are not sales reps. We are vice regents. Big difference between a sales rep and a vice regent. Sales rep just has to know the product. Learn how to convince you that you need the product. Learn how to convince you that you ought to get the product from me. And that relies on my skills as a salesman and my marketing technique and the company behind me so that there's good branding and good logos and it's attractive and that I've learned the information and I sales rep you. Now, I've done evangelism like that a long, long time. Um, I don't really know why I spent so many years doing that, but I did, and I just enjoyed the, the confrontation. And you know, I didn't care if anybody got saved. I just felt better about myself because I made people angry with the gospel, which meant I was honoring Jesus because now I'm being persecuted. Dust my halo off. But I never really cared about the people. And then I realized I'm not a sales rep. That's not the invitation. The invitation is to be a co-heir with Christ and his vice-regent on earth. Whereas he became flesh and dwelt among us, now we are called to become flesh and dwell, and dwell among those who are laboring under the oppression of darkness. We are not sales reps. We are vice-regents. We are not called to embody the ideals of Christ nor beliefs about Christ. We are called to be incarnations of the living Christ. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the goal of the gospel. So the question you have to ask yourself is, have you drifted from being so consumed with what it means to be a believer that you have ceased being a follower? Now, admittedly, these questions are just reflections of my own sin, but I figure if I have had the discomfort of having the Holy Spirit put me on the spot, I will return the favor to you all. Because the answer for me was absolutely that's what I did. Have you drifted from serving the living Christ to serving an ideology? And you'll find out real quick by paying attention to your emotions as you scroll through social media. We get angry at opposing ideologies rather than our hearts breaking for those who are laboring in the darkness. And so what the church has done is that we've taken the very people that we're supposed to be serving and we've made them our ideological enemies. And that's why we go off in adventures of missing the point. We have to move back. I'm not saying you shouldn't have theology. I'm not saying you shouldn't have ideology. We can't get away from that. But what I'm saying is, 
We have to be conscious that these things are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, not replacing him. And so, have you been, have you drifted from the living Christ to serving an ideology? <laughs> the way we could ask it is this, do you need to read Jesus your faith? I will tell you, oftentimes, seasons of growth begin with me recognizing I need to read Jesus my faith. It's drifted away from Christ as a center and I've made something else, maybe good and noble, the center, but it's not Jesus. And so when I do that, I have to go through repentance and read Jesus my faith. Sit with the living Christ, listen to the living Christ, ask questions of the living Christ. I'm grateful for all of our institutions fact of the matter, the Holy Spirit's way better than Gary Smalley in understanding how to serve your spouse. The Holy Spirit is way better than focus on the family to lead you how you're supposed to parent and nurture and disciple your children. Way better. And so sit with the living Christ, listen to the living Christ and ask questions. Then you'll see here at the bottom, you can take this home with you. These are for you to journal, to reflect, to pray or to share with your small group. What is the difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus? When is the last time you consciously chose to do something uncomfortable out of obedience to Christ? And what is the living Christ calling you to do today with the worship?